Hi, I'm George Bodarki. Cityscape won't be heard this week, so we can bring you a special presentation as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign focused on family caregivers. The following is a panel discussion that was produced at the public access network BronxNet. Cityscape will return next week at this time. We'll see you then. Hello, my name is George Bodarki. I'm the news director of NPR affiliate station WFUV, located on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University here in the Bronx. Each quarter, WFUV works to raise awareness of a particular issue through our Strike Accord campaign. Past campaigns have focused on everything from mental illness stereotypes to teen suicide prevention. We're very pleased to be teaming up with BronxNet for our latest campaign on family caregivers. When you're faced with having to care for a sick or disabled loved one, you're bound to encounter a set of new responsibilities, many of which might be unfamiliar or intimidating. With me today in the studio to discuss the needs and challenges of family caregivers is an esteemed panel of experts. Randy Kaplan is director of the Caregiver Support Program at Montefiore Health System. Chris Woodello is associate state director for AARP New York. Matt Kudish is senior vice president of caregiver services at the Alzheimer's Association, New York City chapter. And Sharon Corso is a caregiver for her husband who has Alzheimer's disease. Thank you all so much for being here. Yes, sure. Thanks. I want to start off by going down the line and asking you to finish this sentence. Caregiving is. Sharon, let's start with you. The most difficult thing I had to face in my life. And I basically started off doing it alone. My husband was diagnosed in 2005. And in 2008, I I retired and became the sole caregiver. And within a year, I was desperate. So I went to the Alzheimer's Association and said exactly that. I was desperate. And um, they brought someone out to counsel me, which was Matt at the time. And from then it started the ball rolling. They encouraged me to take the caregiver's course and they encouraged me to take seminars on legalities and you know all sorts of things. And From there, I just took everything they had to offer and found that I was not alone. There was plenty of help out there, so if you seek it, you'll find it. We'll talk more about the services that the Alzheimer's Association affords to caregivers. But Randy, for you, caregiving is? All-consuming is the first word that came to my mind. Um, I find that most caregivers feel that their life is just sort of swallowed up by the process of caregiving and the life that they knew before seems to just erode and disappear. And it can be very overwhelming, it can be very depressing, it can be very lonely. And um, it's just a dramatic shift in almost saying goodbye to to life as you once knew it, to life as you now grow into that role. Matt? Similarly, I would say it's a full-time job. I think recognizing that it takes a toll in in every way imaginable, physical, mental, uh, psychological, emotional, uh, financial, certainly. uh, It's just an incredibly huge undertaking uh, that I think it's imperative people realize that they can't do alone. Chris? Caregiving is is something you will either do for someone else, uh, you will uh, have done for uh, somebody do for you, or uh, you have done in the past. Uh, We find that Almost everyone that we talk to has some intersection with caregiving, whether it's uh, them providing or them uh, being close to someone who's receiving it. But ultimately, many of us will either be doing one of those three things that I previously mentioned at some point in their life, if not receiving it for yourself. Randy, what would you say are the biggest challenges that caregivers face on a day-to-day basis? 
mental and physical exhaustion and, and feeling overwhelmed by the different systems that they have to interface with and just not really knowing where to turn oftentimes, just feeling very alone in the process and, and just not knowing exactly where to go to reach out for a hand that is out there, but not knowing how to find it. Sharon, as you mentioned, you found the Alzheimer's Association, but in the early stages when you were faced with your husband's Alzheimer's diagnosis, what were your challenges that you were up against? Actually, in the very beginning, not much. It was the early onset, and so he was very capable of doing things for himself. You know, a little confusion. Then when I realized he needed somebody full-time and I retired, the challenge was dealing with it on a full-time basis and the personality that I had to deal with, and that was horrendous. He wasn't the same individual that you married? Absolutely not. And I had no time for myself, as was indicated, and I couldn't talk to my friends on the phone because it bothered him. So I used to run out in the street to get some, you know, time and to take a deep breath and hide in the library for a while. So it was very, very difficult and challenging. Matt, I would imagine that for someone who is caring for an individual with Alzheimer's, you have phases because you have early onset, then you have the middle stage, then you have late stage Alzheimer's. So really, you're going through this whole journey when you're caring for somebody with Alzheimer's. Yeah, I think so. The early onset really is an indication of the, the age of which the disease first uh, manifests itself. Uh, and then there's early stage, which has less to do with the age and more to do with where in the illness the person is, and then it progresses from there. But to Sharon's point, it's insidious by nature. Uh, and I think early on, in the, in the beginning, in the early stage of the disease, it can seem manageable. It can seem like, oh, this is something that I can take on. This isn't so bad. The changes aren't so profound found. And then in some cases, very quickly, as Sharon described, things really start to change and it becomes untenable. And I think for, for us, the biggest uh, issue that we face is how do we get people in the door during that period of time when it isn't such a challenge so that we can prepare them for when it will be. And how do you do that? We do a tremendous amount of outreach in, in all communities throughout the city. Uh, we do a lot of education and, and, and uh, specific outreach across diverse populations in all of the boroughs. So we have a uh, Latino outreach program, an African-American outreach program, a Chinese outreach program, a medical and healthcare professional outreach program. <laughs> and we do as much as we can to spread uh, awareness of the fact that we're available 24-7, 365 days a year in 200 languages. So all you have to do is, is pick up the phone and, and ask for help. And we're there to help guide you along the way. Sharon mentioned some of them. Why don't you talk more about the programs that you have in <coughs> place to help caregivers? The helpline is really the primary way that people can reach us for information, education, and support. And then from there, we have care consultation or social work services, where we have uh, licensed master social workers who work with individuals and families around the implications of caring for somebody with the disease, reconciling some of the emotional challenges, uh, working with people to put a care plan in place. We have over 110 support groups throughout the city and all five boroughs happening every single month. Uh, as I mentioned, a tremendous amount of education and training. We train family members. We have a 10-hour family caregiver workshop, and we also train professional caregivers. It's a nationally recognized program uh, that's seven days, seven full days, training pro uh, people who are providing hands-on direct care. Uh, we have an early stage center, early stage services, where people in the early stage of the disease can come and participate in programs that are designed uh, specifically for them. 
uh, and everything is available free of charge. Sharon, you referenced the fact that you learned a lot from the Alzheimer's Association. What would you say was the biggest piece of advice that you got that allowed you to go back to your day-to-day -day and manage some of those challenges? They stress that the caregiver take care of themselves and not neglect your own health issues and find time for yourself. They stress that very strongly. It's not always easy, but it's very good advice. Is there guilt involved when you're taking time for yourself? You know, I'm going to take this moment, but I'm leaving my husband. I know he's in good hands, but I'm going out for a cappuccino and hanging out with my friends today. Um, while he was home, he, it's strange, he encouraged me in ways, but then he got angry. You know, he'd, I'd say, I'm going to meet a friend. Oh, good, have a good time, you know. And then towards the end, before I got him into a facility, it was like if I was watching television in another room, he would want to come in and be with me because he was not focusing anymore, so he didn't want to be alone. So that was a little guilt because I would say, I'm watching a program, you know, and he'd go out, you know, with a sad face, but I guess I had to do it. I needed to take a breath, you know, so. But I remember saying that to him, and I still carry that little bit of guilt for saying that. Had I known a little more, maybe I could have handled it a little differently, but I was not that well-schooled at that time. Yeah, I would imagine a lot of it is also just understanding Alzheimer's, just really getting to know the disease as best you can. That caregiver course is so important. That really got me going. It taught me how to speak to Anthony and how not to speak to Anthony. Because most people, I think, at the onset, you're trying to get them to understand what you're saying. That only makes them angry and they can become combative and things like that. So that was, that was the first important thing that I got into the caregiver's course. Don't argue. Right. Don't, don't try to make them understand. They can't. Randy, getting back to this idea of needing to take a breath, you provide people a place to take a breath at Montefiore. Talk to us about the Caregiver Support Center. The Caregiver Center is in the hospital, strategically located next to the cafeteria and the chapel and a lot of the ICUs. And people oftentimes think, well, if your loved one is in the hospital, you're not going to leave the bedside. But we have heard probably thousands of times, quite literally, how important it is for them to be able to take that those steps away from the bedside because while you're doing it you don't even know how how exhausted emotionally and physically you're becoming and when they walk into the center which is a very soothing calming relaxing kind of environment which was by design they walk into the room and many of them say I actually feel my blood pressure decreasing I feel less anxious you're greeted by a wall of water and a stone wall and very soothing colors and you know it's quiet and it looks very different than the rest of the hospital it's in fact the only place in the hospital which has some very lovely waiting rooms that looks like you're walking into a spa so to speak and and that change of environment is incredibly relaxing and calming and that's what they need and we encourage people to go to sleep we encourage a lot of people who have been up for days and days and days mm -hmm. sitting at the bedside of um, critically ill or you know acutely ill patients and we put them into a private room and we say they say I snore and we say well you won't be the first and we, we that would be music to our ears 
And when they go to sleep, they come out of there and they say, you, I had no idea how exhausted I was. And they don't. Because like you say, you get very caught up in the, in the whole process of becoming a caregiver. And it's, we see it as our job is to assess what does that person need most and try to provide it in whatever way we can. You have individuals who work at the Caregiver Support yes, Center who are on staff who are there to help volunteers as well. Yes, I have a staff member who is wonderful, and I have an incredible core of volunteers that have, some of whom have been with us for five years, which is remarkable in the, in the world of volunteerism. So it's a very meaningful environment because giving, giving to individuals who give so much and being able to give them something, and it might even be a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, but when you hand that to them, it's miraculous. It's a really miraculous look that comes over many people's eyes because they just don't see themselves as being the person that someone else is going to take care of. How much of an ear do these volunteers lend to the caregivers? The most gigantic ears you can imagine. I mean, my first image was of Dumbo. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, listening, listening is really key. And some people just want to tell you their story. They want to tell you what's been going on. And they may not even want to talk about exactly what's going on with the illness. And we find that that is another source of comfort. They might start talking to you about how they met the individual who's in the hospital, or about their high school days, or their war experience. And if they want to go there, we're right there with them. You know, we, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to listen to other people's stories. And then at the end, they often say to us, I, I can't believe I just told you all that. I, never, I didn't even meet you until a half an hour ago. It's just the need to connect with another person and, and a kind of escape from the day-to-day -day of the reality of whatever, you know, overwhelming and anxiety-producing situation they're in. Fortunately, I haven't had a lot of experience having to be at a hospital, but how unique is a caregiver support center these days in a hospital to have that place for someone to go and really escape from what they're dealing with? It's highly unique. Um, there are centers popping up in different hospitals across the country, but in New York City, Montefiore is the only caregiver support center of any hospital in New York City. Um, and people are astonished that we exist, and they walk in and they say, I've been to this hospital or that hospital you know, in, in Manhattan, and why doesn't that exist there? How could that not be? And they don't even re you don't realize how much you need it until you're in it. Like you don't know how good chocolate tastes or lobster or whatever until you taste it. And when you walk into something like this, people say every hospital in the world should have this. And it's true. Every hospital in the world should have this. Yeah, let me ask you this question because when you're in a hospital setting and you're there, obviously you're going to be talking with doctors as well, and you're dealing with so much emotion, do you help people to... How do you help people understand, how do you approach that? How do you approach working with doctors or understanding when you're dealing with all of these challenging emotions of being the caregiver? Well, we don't, we don't talk about medical issues per se with them because we're not trained to, to do that. But we can encourage people to, to figure out how to navigate who to talk to. Have you spoken to the, to the attending? Some people don't know the terminology, so we educate them as to the terminology. Who is the attending? Who is the physician's assistant? Where can you get the answers? And we try to enable them to or empower them to be able to do that. And oftentimes they feel very intimidated, many people from whatever the socioeconomic background. And we often hold family meetings. We encourage them to ask for a family meeting, which is 
a lot of the time held in the caregiver support center, which they feel very comfortable in to begin with. It's like it's become their space, so that right there makes them feel like they're not in the, in the medical professional space, they're in their space, and the doctors and the nurses are coming to them. And that, that has proven to be a, a very powerful experience for them. Let me turn to Chris. Chris, what is AARP most focused on when it comes to assisting caregivers? So nationally, we're looking at ways that we can better the lives of uh, family caregivers in particular. That, um, you know, the things that we heard from uh, Sharon and, and Randy are just uh, comments that we hear from, from a lot of our members uh, in the public when they talk about um, the, what they've faced as a caregiver. And so we are looking for ways that in, with policy here in the state, here in the city, that we can uh, provide some type of relief, uh, whether that is uh, some type of respite care, whether that is um, counseling, uh, ways that we can connect people with services that are out there. You know, I don't think it's uncommon for people, are, you know, usually if you become a caregiver, you're thrust into that. It's not something you're preparing for. So um, it's not uncommon that you're not tuned into what services are available if they are. And so nationally, it is a priority of AARP in every state that we are working on some level uh, around caregiving. And here in New York, we're very concerned about uh, making sure that uh, family caregivers are well supported and they feel like they can uh, do this job, uh, which is an unbelievable task, um, well and uh, and take care of themselves. I I think when Sharon said that, that's incredibly important in, in the whole process. What more legislatively can be done to assist caregivers in New York State? What can Albany do? Sure. Uh, well, there's a few different things. Uh, one, we need to make sure that we're clearing the wait lists that exist around the state for a home and community-based care, that a lot of people are eligible for services that are, uh, that are not receiving them, and, and this is putting a strain on family members. A lot of times they are taking, uh, doing things that they really cannot uh, physically uh, or financially uh, do, um, and so we need to make sure that there is proper home and community-based care throughout the state. The other area that we're focused on is paid family leave. Uh, we like to see statewide legislation to make sure that people have fam- paid family leave insurance, so if they need to take the time off from their employment, the issue of uh, do I have a job and, and can I go back to that job and will I receive some type of income is uh, a stress that we can take off their shoulders because when we surveyed uh, people here in um, New York City and asked them about their um, you know, concerns around caregiving, many of them, uh, well over 40% responded that there, it puts a stress on their work life, uh, that they feel that it is uh, uh, certainly that they're less productive. But knowing that they have this type of you know, uh, paid family leave insurance goes a long way to uh, allowing them to be productive and, and know that they have the financial security that's there. I also understand that there are restrictions on what home health care aides can do. For instance, they can't put eye drops in. Correct. Yeah, and and that was something that we looked at last year, and we were going to pursue it again this year. Uh, uh, Home health aides have certain limitations, and so there's other jobs that have to be performed by registered nurses. And uh, many of the nurses say that a lot of their time is spent running from from house to house or even trying to find parking. Uh, More time is spent on the road than it is doing the job. And so we would like to see legislation that would uh, create a a career ladder for home health aides, uh, sort of like an advanced home health aide. They'd be certified, trained, and be under the supervision of a registered nurse, but could do some of the tasks that uh, are deemed um, you know, reasonable, uh, like eye drops. Uh, you know, uh, prescription drugs uh, can't be administered by uh, home health aides. So you know, it requires a registered nurse to come out. We have heard of instances of uh, family members crushing them up, putting them in the food, because that way when they're fed, 
you know, they're receiving the prescription drug, the home health aide doesn't know, but it, it saves the, uh, the, the caregiver from running home uh, and trying to do that, or uh, a more expensive, costly uh, registered nurse from coming out. And, and the nurses do agree that, you know, that their time could be better used, uh, you know, given, you know, here in the city in the Bronx, try to find parking to run into a house for five minutes, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy task. Matt, is there anything in particular that the Alzheimer's Association would like to see uh, or that is, you're advocating for? Uh, you know, similar to what Chris was saying, we've actually been playing a, a, a strong advocacy role in moving some of that legislation forward, working with 1199 and with AARP. Um, I think it's really, uh, the system is sort of has a lot of inefficiencies in mm -hmm. that regard, um, and I think there are certainly ways that we could uh, in, in, enhance uh, and, and also by creating these career ladders really enhance the value Absolutely. add of the home health aides. How challenging is it, do you think, for someone to actually step forward and seek help? I mean, we're all talking about the need. It's so important to go out and seek help. But how challenging is it for someone to realize that they do? Because many of us do want to shoulder the burden as long as we possibly can. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of different issues that, that compound into the challenges. And I think some, some of them are cultural and, and some of them are just sort of maybe more about pride or, or feelings of guilt or this is, this is my family member. I'm supposed to be doing this. I think first and foremost, people don't always recognize the fact that they are a caregiver. They see themselves as a daughter or a, a husband um, or you know, any other kind of relative or friend, and they don't see, define themselves by, by these terms. And I think that's really the first step, recognizing that this is now a role that you're playing and it's not a skill set that we're born with, that, that especially when it, when it comes to caring for people with dementia, there are skills that you can learn so that you can do it better, more successfully, so that it's easier. Uh, and I think that's really some of the barriers that people assume they know what they're talking about when we talk about Alzheimer's and other kinds of dementia. They've seen it before, they saw a movie about it, so they, they think they understand what the trajectory is uh, and that there isn't anything that you can do. So in lieu of meaningful disease-modifying treatments, we think that the best treatment is, is the best quality care. And that's really what we're expert at helping people uh, to learn how to do and how to provide. Maria, do you want to add on to that? I saw you nodding over there. Well, it's interesting because I was once in front of about 100 people who were taking care of people either having received a kidney transplant or were on a waiting list for a kidney transplant. And I asked, the, and I knew that that was who the population was, and I said, how many of you are in, the, in this room are caregivers? And nobody raised their hand. Mm -hmm. And then I asked in another way, in another way, and slowly, slowly, you saw the hands like creeping up like that. And one woman started crying in the back of the room and she said, nobody, I never even thought of myself that way. It was, it was exactly what you just mm -hmm. described. And it was so emotional for her because she realized that is what I am and it's never really been publicly acknowledged. And that public acknowledgement and that validation of the intensity of her role brought her to tears. And it's, you know, we have a sign right outside our door that says Caregiver Support Center, and we'll see people sometimes lingering outside the door, and we open the door, we say, hi, do you have a family member here? And they say, yes. We say, and they say, but, oh, no, you know, it's okay, it's okay. And we say, well, that we're here for you. And they say, you're here for me? What, what do you mean you're here for me? And then you have to help them realize what it is that we're there to help support and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's me. That's me, you know, once we explain it. And they're astonished. They're actually astonished that somebody in a hospital or an association like both of yours are, were really there to help people.
in, in these situations. In the bottom line, unless you take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to properly take care of someone else, right? And it is very hard, as you said. It's very hard. Sharon, know. I guess you could attest to that. I knew <coughs> I was a caregiver. I had been exposed to Alzheimer's prior. My mother-in-law had it, and ironically, my husband was her caregiver. She lived one floor up. So I really thought I knew somewhat, but my husband's case was different because he was a wanderer, and um, it was behavior that was it. So I knew I was a caregiver, but I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know that the personality was going to change so, because my mother-in-law's didn't. Mm -hmm. So that was the shock. And I don't know what made me go to the Alzheimer's Association. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what they had to offer, but I knew I needed something. The word caregiver did not upset me, you know, uh, but I just didn't know how to help myself, let alone help him the proper way. How much support have you found in others who share your story, those support groups, just hearing and talking with people who are going through similar experiences? Oh, it's enormous. I mean, it, it was life-changing. Just everything the association had to offer, the support group, it, I mean, right now my husband's been in a facility for three years, so he, he's taken care of. And I'm, you know, getting along. But every day there's a new challenge. And I, I know what's in store, but I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. So someone who has gone through it before me can help me, and hopefully I can help the next one. And I pass the word out about getting self-help, I mean, to anybody who, who just gives an inclination that they have a problem. I just tell them, seek help in any way you can. I'm a big advocate in self-help groups. Rudy, how big of an issue is depression among oh. caregivers? Oh. It's huge. It's, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but sometimes I think some of the statistics show that the caregiver is actually much more at risk for depression than the patient. And it's, um, I, I would say it's, my guess is it's at least 50% of caregivers find themselves experiencing significant depression. Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah, Sharon? Yeah, that Did you go through that phase of oh depression? Oh, my God. Did I? I was in a, in a state. I mean, I, didn't, I couldn't even get myself up, let alone handle someone else. And uh, I, I sought help. My doctor realized it and, uh, you know, asked me to go on um, medicine, which I did. And um, it's li that's life-changing, too. I mean, it's another support system. So I was more than happy to do it, and that's made a tremendous change for me. Well, coincidentally, November is National Family Caregivers Month. Are any of your organizations do any, doing anything to celebrate caregivers, Chris? Yeah, uh, you know, we are uh, looking to work with legislators to uh, bring a little higher um, uh, you know, focus on, on caregiving and what can be done. It's a, it's a, it's a really time to recognize our, our caregivers and, and uh, bring awareness. And I think folks like Sharon sharing their story, their personal story of how they have, how this has impacted their lives is essential. I, I think we can talk about policy all we want, but what really moves the policy is hearing from folks. So the more people that can share those stories, and we're always looking to collect those stories in a meaningful way that, that brings light to the issue and why it's so important that 
uh, that policy reflects the need. And, uh, you know, family caregivers save the state over $40 billion a year in, in services that otherwise would have to be paid for. Uh, and so we owe it to them to do something to make their lives better. And often it is at the counseling level. Being able to talk to somebody has such a value because you don't want to complain about mom or dad or your loved one, but it really isn't. You know, being connected with people that are going through what you're going through can often be a, a big step in the right direction to, you know, to help you uh, uh, cope with, with this incredible responsibility. Matt, does the Alzheimer's Association have anything planned for a national Family Caregivers Month? I think we try to make every month Family Caregivers Month and Good really answer. honor uh, the, the journey that the clients we're working with are on you know, as often as we can. Okay, well, we're just about out of time. Randy, anything you want to add? Well, thank you so much for bringing this to the attention of the sure. public. I think that that's an enormous public service, community service, and it's, um, it's so timely. And I think as the population ages, particularly, and the baby boomer generation ages, we're going to have to do something to help support family caregivers. Sharon, any parting words? Thank you for asking me because it's nice to be able to um, get the word out on my level and get people to know that they should seek help from whatever association, whatever illness they're dealing with. So I'm honored to be here to give back just a little bit of what I got. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this special collaboration between public radio station WFUV and BronxNet focusing on family caregivers. I want to thank our guests, Randy Kaplan, Chris Widello, Matt Kudish, and Sharon Corso. Thank you so much for coming in. For more information about the organizations they're involved with or to simply find out more about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, visit WFUV.org slash Strike Accord. I'm George Boraki. Thanks for being with us. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.